This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am here with Work Game Boy Modder Extraordinaire. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going, man? Good. So I um I discovered your work through my friend Zach, aka Voltar, and uh, he hates everything. So <laughs> when uh when he sung your work so much praise, I I made sure to pay extra close attention to it. And holy crap, was he right? And I'm just teasing about Zach, by the way. But uh, but yeah, seriously, when I saw him repost a lot of your stuff, I was totally blown away. Um, right so for, for people that aren't familiar with your work, could you give just like a little short blurb about what it is that you do? Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, I do everything Game Boy, and uh, the mentality is uh, I try and make as much stuff as I can here in shop. Um, and um, my buddy Sean, uh, and I, de- well, he developed it, uh, and I sell it and install it, but made kits so that any of the mods we do don't require switches. Uh, which basically means no cutting shells. So everything's done by touch sensors inside the shells. That's incredible. So everything from, uh, now of course you did that awesome write-up on the backlit screens and stuff that you donated to the website. Thank you very much for that. Um, but what what's like the, the list of products and stuff that you make and offer and modding services that you offer? Well, at the moment I'm in a transition. Um, originally what I had been doing was doing lots of custom builds for people. Um, and, uh, I've gotten to a point where I'm overwhelmed and I just can't keep a reasonable timeline for people. Mm-hmm. Um, now most of the orders I take, people don't pay until the work is done. So it's not like people's money is tied up for the most part, but, uh, I just can't keep up with the time frame anymore. So I'm transitioning out of doing custom builds and into providing just DIY kits, um, uh, custom made buttons and shells and things like that. So. I'm moving into right now a stage where everything I'll have will be pre-built. If there's a mod I'm selling, it's going to be pre-done instead of someone reaching out to me uh, just for the time frame. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I always tell all of my friends, like, you know, while you might like doing a bunch of stuff, when it comes time that you're overwhelmed, stick to the things that only you could do. And while your right. modding work's obviously excellent, there's a lot of really talented modders out there that right. might not necessarily necessarily be able to do any of the, the designs that you do or any of the mod kits or stuff. So it's a smart move, and I think everybody will kind of win overall in a scenario like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just not fair for customers if they're waiting months for their mod. Um, and uh, most people don't realize, but I have a full-time job. I have a son, as you saw, and animals and stuff. So uh, I don't have the time to be able to be knocking out 20 orders in a week. Um, so. Makes perfect sense. So what's um, – I guess I'll just jump to the latest thing I've seen you post because I was really intrigued about it. So okay. are you making homemade molds that you're able to actually make your own plastic for Game Boys? Yeah. So uh, I make silicone molds and then cast resin and um, – I've been playing with this for about two years, and it's been a very expensive process of a lot of failures. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm finally getting to a point where I can produce quality parts. Um, it started with buttons, but now I'm doing shells. Um, actually, I have the, the mold here. Uh, so this is what the mold looks like, and it's a two-part mold. This is just for the front half of the shell. But so you can see this is for the inside and this is for the exterior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can reproduce um, the front half of shells now in whatever color I want, transparent, uh, with images embedded in it, things like that. Jeez, that's crazy. So can you describe, um, well, first, how does, how does one even make something like that? Um, well, for a simple part, it, it's really rather simple. You uh, glue a part into a, the bottom of a box and you pour silicone over it. 
Um, but for more complicated parts like that, you do a two-part mold, and uh, for something, a thin casting like a shell, um, you actually have to vacuum degas the silicone, uh, you pour it into your mold, and then you put it in a pressure chamber, and you let that cure. And then you pull that out, and you do the other half of the mold in the same process. Um, and then ultimately, you do the same thing with the resin. You vacuum degas it to remove the air. Uh, you inject it into your mold, and then you cast it under pressure, like anywhere from 60 to 70 PSI. And what that does is any remaining air in the mixture gets brought down to uh, a microscopic size. So you can't see any air bubbles. It doesn't cause structural issues. Uh, yeah. that's That sounds like there's just... I mean, you probably need an entire stack of equipment to work on stuff like that then, right? Yeah. Um, so behind me <laughs> is my, my soldering station and my Dremel station. But over here, this is all for molding and casting. Oh, jeez. Uh, that's you awesome. See I got a pressure chamber and air compressor on the ground, uh, vacuum chamber and pumps up above. But, yeah, it's um, – for someone who's getting into it um, – it's it's expensive. Uh, the equipment I have is probably about a thousand dollars worth of stuff. Jeez, I mean that's not bad considering what you're doing. If this is something that's right. a, an important hobby, certainly not for one-offs, but uh, but yeah, that's that, it's pretty impressive. So the, yeah. at least from the pictures that um, well, I guess I, I skipped ahead for a moment. Let me just step back. So now that you've you've made the molds, how mm -hmm. do you actually make each of the plastic parts? Is there like molten plastic, is it similar to 3D oh, printing or where you have the pellets? It's two-part resins. Um, so this is a polyurethane resin, mm -hmm. and you have part A and a part B. Um, for this particular one, you mix uh, by weight, and so you do 100 um, of part A to 90 of part B, and that's the ratio you, you weigh them at. Um, and when you mix them, uh, it's basically a liquid resin and then a hardener. And uh, when you mix the two, they have a thermo uh, <clears throat> reaction. I don't know. I'm not a chemist. Um, but through heat, they produce heat, and then the heat cures it into a solid plastic. So um, it's actually a polyurethane plastic, not like ABS, which is what they use for direct injection. Interesting. And it looked, at least through the pictures online, like the, the one way that I could always tell is with any kind of clear plastics. You could always... You know, like the 3D prints have the distinctive look. They're not quite clear. You know, you could shine light through them, but that's about it. Um, and then you have stuff like uh, I have my Super NT behind me, and uh, which is the ABS clear plastic molds. And it looked very close to that in, in quality. Is that the touch yeah. and feel of it close to that? Yeah, so it's actually an exact replica of an OEM shell. So mm -hmm. the texture, every uh, even the injection port and... Um, uh, every factory marking that's on the original case uh, is transferred into the mold down to the fact that the Nintendo Game Boy and the A and B and the Select, which are just a very thin layer of um, paint or however they did that on the original, um, if you look at the right angle in the mold, it actually picks up that that thin of a layer. So anything even half a hair thick gets picked up by the mold. Uh, so it's a complete exact replica. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. Um, what I'm working on now, which is why they haven't been for sale yet, is um, there's a really fine balance between clarity, rigidity, and flex strength. And so you can see in – this is the first shell that I ever cast. And this is epoxy resin. And you can see it just mm – -hmm. no rigidity to it at all, right? But it flex without tearing. And For anybody listening uh, audio only, what Rourke's doing is like, uh, it almost looks like the rubber cover to like a softer cell phone. So yeah. that, you know, when you bend it, it may, might be rubber, it might be plastic, but it doesn't snap, it just kind of bends. And right. That was the, the first prototype that you made. Right, and that was epoxy resin. Uh, and then this is epoxy resin with a little thixotropic additive, which makes it more rigid, but it's still too flexible for... Um, an actual replacement shell. Mm -hmm. But now, um, this is the most recent one I did, and you can see this is polyurethane resin, and this is very rigid. It does have a little bit of flex to it, but I can show you the comparison uh, of an actual Game Boy shell. This is ABS plastic, 
it still has that flex to it. So the flex is identical pretty much to the what ABS plastic would have been. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty much right on point. So I'm I'm almost there to get these on the market. That's that is nuts. And when uh you know the shell that you just held up was crystal clear. I mean you could see yeah. right through that one. So that's pretty and I don't awesome. Know if you can see, but it actually has an image embedded into it. Uh, I see that. Yeah, I saw you playing like, with that on Twitter as well. Could you explain a little bit about that too? Yeah. So um, I started doing this with buttons, and um, the the neat thing about doing a liquid resin is you can actually embed objects into the resin. Um, so what I do is I'll print a design on um, transparency film which is the same stuff like back when we were kids and the teacher would have the overhead projector that would project like a, you know, a graph onto the whiteboard or something. It's the same clear films that they use to print on. And so I'll print an image and then I cut it out by hand. And then while the resin um, is still within its pot life, meaning uh, it's still liquid and hasn't started curing yet, you can actually embed that image into the resin and that image will be inside uh, of the button or the shell or whatever you're doing. So unlike with UV printing, where you can scratch the, the image off, this is actually inside the plastic itself. So um, there's no scratching it off unless you scratch through the shell. So it's not so, like an etch or a sticker. It's more like a tattoo. Uh, yeah, it's kind of more like a tattoo. But then imagine you have actual resin above the tattoo. Hmm. Even better. Yeah, um, actually, I can show you on a button more easily, I think, if the camera picks it up. Yeah, this is actually This is actually a Voltor button. I don't know if Oh, look see. at that. That is, that is a Voltor button. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been playing with that a lot. Um, <clears throat> but the next stage is even cooler, which is what I'm looking forward to, which is you can embed electronics into resin. Um, and so uh, my backlight controller, or I should say Sean's backlight controller, um, I'm working on ways where that could be the controller could be embedded in the shell itself. Mm -hmm. And then all I would have to do is just grind down the power and ground planes. Um, so the customer would have a pre-modded um, shell, and they would just have to wire power and ground to the Game Boy instead of all the other wires that go with it. That's so incredible. like you can imagine you could have LEDs embedded already directly in the shell um, and they just power and ground. So I have a little bit of experience with touch controller stuff. Um, I used to work for a company that did medical grade computers from scratch. So you know, we'd design everything from the boards to the plastic shells and all that stuff way before 3D printing was, was in the form that it is now. And at right. the time, the touch sensors um, you know, we designed it for the thickness of the plastic. We we embossed, you know, the little bit of a, like a, a tray almost, describe it for it to go into so that you would press the touch sensors in. Um, and it mm -hmm. was super finicky because you needed to get it just right. If the, the plastic had just an uneven finish on it, it wouldn't be that accurate. So I know right. the touch technology has come a long way. I mean, that was 10 years ago. But on top right. of that, if you're able to embed it directly into the shell like that, that removes 99.9% .9 of any chances of inaccuracies like that. So right. the fact that you could sell kits with them built in is, is absolutely nuts. That is such a cool thing to have. Yeah, because uh, one of the things I, I forget is um, I, I think of our kit as being so easy to install. Uh, it's just wires. So mm. other, you know, wire to wire, uh, pad to pad. But um, I get a lot of feedback from people or a lot of questions from people on constantly trying to help people install their kits um and that's when it kind of dawned on me like if i could have all the wiring done all you had to do was power and ground it would make things a lot easier for people yeah absolutely yeah. um and actually the touch sensors have come a real long way the, the ones we use now um every time you power it on it calibrates and so it adjusts for whatever kind of thing is in between uh it and you so um, they're very sensitive and it calibrates. So if you have anything in front of it when it's off and then you turn it on, that won't register a touch in any way. Um, so that's also good because if you happen to be holding it on the sensor when you turn it on, that'll completely throw the calibration off. So just turn it off and back on again. And there yeah. you go, all set. Yeah, so if you do have a mistake or something wrong, like you were saying, switch it on and off and it'll recalibrate. 
That is killer. I didn't even realize that you'd uh, you'd implemented that. So yeah, well, that was an R impl- implementation. That's uh, the way the touch sensors come straight from the factory. Hmm. I guess it's yeah. been a long time since I've messed with that technology. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So right now, can people buy those from you as just the kits with the shells and the touch sensors? Uh, not the shells yet. I'm not selling the shells yet, just because I'm still working out the perfect resin mixture. Um, uh, with the Thixotropic additives. So once I get the recipe really down and I have enough time to test it, uh, I'll start selling them. The one thing I don't want to do is is start selling out shells and then a month later find out there's something I didn't think about. Like if the, you leave it in the sun, they get softer. You know, I don't want anything to come no, down. I totally understand, yeah. And I think, you know, it's just, especially in the retro gaming world, when it's very often just one person or one small team of people working on things, I always like to remind people that your first run, even if you think it's done, call it a beta. Because <laughs> people, yeah. generally speaking, people are completely open and welcoming to be a tester for you. They don't mind if things go wrong, as long as you let them know what they're getting themselves into. So, uh, yeah, once you get it right, I think if you just say, I think it's right, here's some betas, let me know. Uh, I think people would be more than happy to still buy them at full price. Just uh, it's only when people get feel like they've gotten a switcheroo pulled on them do people tend to get upset. So, yeah, I, I was just watching your thing on um, what's his name from Pico, oh, and you saying <laughs> like don't offer a ROM and then fucking not send it to me and then start up a new Kickstarter. I mean, that's exactly you know. It, when I do these things, right, I'm shooting video by myself in a room in front of a camera, and I always try to envision myself on the other end. But speaking to you about your stuff, can you imagine then if you sold a kit of things where they came with the kit, your case embossed with some logos, you had the touch sensors built in, new battery covers, new and new uh, A and B buttons. So, And then you have this entire kit that you're ready to sell, and then right. you ship it to people and say, um, yeah, by the way, the start and select buttons are coming. I just got to finish that. I'll send it to you soon. And then people ask, people ask. Eventually, they're like, oh, I'll just use my old buttons that came with my Game Boy. And then six months later, you say, yeah, I'm doing a Kickstarter for those buttons. <laughs> but, like, like I, don't, I couldn't even imagine doing anything like that. So that's why, you know, I'm so biased about those things because I, I yeah. more than not have the opposite interaction with people who sell things. People that genuinely care what people's experiences are when they get them. So, you know, the fact that you're being cautious about when you start selling these things is, you know, speaks for itself. So it's always nice to hear that. Well, and uh, I mean, on a much smaller scale than Pico, but um, I was, when I was listening to your video this morning, I could relate to him on some level in that I have sent out products, you know, I'll send out a Game Boy, it gets to the to customer, and there's an issue that arose during shipping, you know, like there's a vertical line, something, uh, um, the way you respond is you eat the loss and you refund the customer and you fix the problem, right? Or, you know. Yeah, I mean, once again, most people, you know, not everybody out there is a nice person or sometimes nice people have really bad days or weeks. So I try not to judge, but most people in most scenarios, if you just at least show that you're making an effort to try and help, we'll be completely cool about everything. We'll have, you know, no worries and no. You know, just sure, whatever, you know, let's get this done. Oh, I'm disappointed, but it's just about how, I guess it's not just how you treat people, it's the perception on how people are being treated. You know, some people yeah. that are naturally gruffy might might come across the wrong way and it takes an extra minute to realize it. But I think as long as people perceive that they're being treated fairly, everybody's cool. Most everybody's cool. So, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I just, it makes so much sense to me. I just can't understand why it doesn't make sense to other people. <laughs> I, I think one of the big things is um, when we see these examples of people in the retro gaming community who do these shitty moves, um, not just Pico, but in general, um, mm-hmm. the, I think the majority of the community, uh, like ourselves, are passionate about what we're doing, and the business is not... Like, I don't... Pop, n- Every dollar that comes in stays in a business account. I don't pay myself anything. I don't make money off of doing it. What I do get is someone else is paying me for my education on how to manufacture products, right? But I'm not making actual money off of it. It's not really a business for me where maybe for him it is a business. It is about making the money, not about producing a quality product, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, you see that, I, you know, I I don't mind using this particular company as an example. I hate that I sound like I'm repeating myself, but Pound is the perfect example of that. They know their product is junk. They know it. They never had any intention of selling a product that could be good. They knew back in the prototype phase that it was going to be junk, and they just saw a hole in the market and said, let's see how many thousands of these we could sell, and then uh, some, you know, somebody else will do it right, then we'll go out of business, shut the company down, and move on. And I've, I've met lots of companies like that. I mean, they, you know. As long as they're honest about the quality of the product and they're fairly priced. You know, yeah, but that's not- the thing with companies like this is they pop up very often um, and they, with the exit strategy being as soon as people figure them out one way or the other, they just solve the company <laughs> and walk away. I've seen yeah. that so often, you know, because we were a small startup company. So for six years, we we're talking mostly to lots of other small startup companies. And it got to a point where, like, you could smell it, right? You could be like, all right, that, you know, that guy cooked bacon before he came here. You know, this person forgot to put on deodorant, and that person's going to screw us all over and shut down their company in six months. Yeah. Like, it's just one of those things where you just, you could feel it. I don't, I don't know if I would go that far on pound, but everything else I said is true. They absolutely knew what they were getting into. So it's, you know, I get it. You have to make money. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't have to go to bed at night feeling like I'm a good person, but I couldn't sleep at night if I knew that I was intentionally screwing people over. So I just, right. I couldn't walk down that road ever. But. Yeah. That's the thing. I've got a full-time job that pays for all my bills and, and my personal life. The business just pays for the business. You know, it's not about making a profit. It's just about, I want to be able to make every single piece of a Game Boy, and then I can move on to other consoles. That's know? awesome, and who knows, maybe someday that will lead to it, but uh, you yeah. know, you certainly have the right attitude. And I know people already know this, but I do wanna just reiterate the fact that all of the wonderful and good stories we have in the retro gaming world are very easy to forget, whereas the bad stories like stick with people. So for out of every hundred stories, if two are bad, those are the ones that people remember. So don't forget that yeah. uh, retro gaming world is filled with a bunch of really awesome people that do that care and do great things. So I think the majority of the people who you see in the community, particularly the staples, are in the same boat where they they care about providing quality product for other people in the community more than they care about ripping people off. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing too. Um, I forgot, there was somebody that posted a really good analogy online about these things. Is like where you start out either doing it for fun or a hobby, or you start out building yourself, and then it does get to that line where it's like, I have to make a choice. I either got to stop doing this or do it for a living. I can't, you know, I can't, it's getting too big. And it's interesting to see how people react to that. And it's also sad because there are some amazing anything out there, products, podcasts, videos, whatever. There's a bunch of amazing stuff out there might not on its own be able to support everything at once so it's uh that's why i like stuff like patreon it's really cool to see stuff like support platforms be able to have a way for people to keep going with stuff like this yeah but um so to get back to your kits because i am a little bit obsessed with those and i can't wait to see more of this stuff so the end goal is to make remake every piece of the game boy that's a plastic piece right including the uh battery doors and the buttons and stuff like that. Um, what other parts do you sell in your kits? Do you actually sell some of like the backlit screens and stuff like that for original Game Boy? So uh, I did for a brief moment um, sell the backlights themselves, um, but I'm working with um, different vendors on getting the right price and a decent RGB backlight. Mm-hmm. Um but so right now, what I have available are capacitor kits for a variety of Game Boys. Um, I have the backlight controllers, um, and then do you know what a bivert is? Yes, I, I yeah. love it. By the way, You'll have, we'll go back to explaining what that is in a minute. But uh, continue okay. on. So we have uh, two different controllers, uh, touch sensor controllers. One is an RGB backlight and an LED controller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tap the touch sensor, it changes the backlight color. You hold it, and it turns on an auxiliary mod on or off. Usually that's for LEDs, but it can be any other auxiliary mod. Um, and then we have one that's it's basically the same thing, but it's an RGB controller and a bivert in one. And um, if you tap the touch sensor, it changes the backlight color. If you hold the touch sensor, it inverts or biverts the screen. Um, and uh, so I sell that. The touch sensors... Um, I've been posting limited availability buttons. Like as I make buttons, I sell them, uh, but those usually sell out 
instantly, so they're not really available. Um, outside of a few other random things, that, that's the that's the main product line. So do you want to go over a little bit for um, people that aren't really, uh, people who don't know what Bivert is or haven't been able yeah. to see it? Because I could show an example, but with the, the podcast interview stuff, I think uh, more than 50% listen audio only. So right. how would you describe that then for people that maybe not aren't able to see it in person? Yeah, so um, the main thing is the way that the uh, LCD on the Game Boy DMG, the original Game Boy, and the Game Boy Pocket, um, the way they are is, is very funny, but if you flip the polarizer on the front of the screen 90 degrees, um, just by the nature of the polarizer, it inverts it, but in that inverted uh, section, uh, like actually flipping the polarizer gives you a sharper contrast than how it's nat natively oriented. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that it, the image is inverted. Um, so what you do is you get a hex inverter chip um, and you pull the vertical and the horizontal data lines that go to the LCD and you feed it into the hex inverter's inputs and it uh, inverts them to the opposite. So if it's getting a zero, it gives out a one and vice versa. Um, and so what you're doing is you have the polarizer oriented in the uh, position that has the best contrast, and then you're using a hex inverter to re-invert the image a second time, which is why people call it a bivert. Um, All right, so that makes sense. So when the original inversion is when you're looking at a Game Boy screen, uh, imagine like an Etch-A-Sketch. For you know anybody anybody under thirty might not know what one of those is, so you'll have to look that up. But but you know that's essentially how you could imagine a Game Boy screen being drawn, and inverting would be flipping it. So the parts that are being drawn are are now the opposite color. Right, and you're almost turning on the brightness of the stuff that isn't being drawn and turning off what is. But right. just so, doing so that alone, you're not able to uh, to get a clear enough image out of it, right? Right. So on the etch a sketch example. Um, when you invert it, everything would be black, and then you'd be drawing a white line through it, right? You'd have the opposite of your normal Etch-A-Sketch. Um, but putting that inverter on it doesn't actually affect the contrast in any way. What's actually increasing the contrast is flipping the polarizer film, which is the same stuff people have in their sunglasses, right, that dark film. And um, when you flip it, it also inverts the image. So blacks become whites and whites become blacks. Um, but having the polarizer oriented uh, in this way is, has the best contrast uh, possible with the screen. And then you need a hex inverter chip to re-invert the image. Uh, okay. It can only be done if you backlight your screen. Uh, it won't work just trying to have a reflective screen with it. I can't imagine why anybody would go through the trouble of doing these mods and not add a backlight screen or a backlit screen. So yeah, it totally yeah. makes sense. Uh, although I guess the one reason would be because most people mess up their Game Boy mods on the screen. It's it's backlighting the screen that people break them. It's not adding controllers or adding the bivert because all of that stuff, if you mess up, it can be redone. The Game Boy is built like a tank. Um, you can short it out and it'll turn back on. The original Game Boy is a tank. Um, but, uh, yeah, most people mess it up on the screen. So. And um, are there are there pre-made screen kits available anywhere where you buy the screen that's already been backlit and biverted, so you just plug it into your current? Yes. Um, ben Ven is the only one who has done it to my knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, and he's working on a new one. The uh, original one that he has, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's a, um, it, it replaces the DMG front um, PCB, the, the LCD PCB, and um, he has a three-inch screen on it that's already backlit, and um, it's a great screen, except it, it only exemplifies like the, the ghosting problem uh, that original Game Boys have. So fast-moving games like Donkey Kong or something like that, it doesn't look good. Um, but on other games, it looks great. Um, but he's working on a new screen uh, to fix that issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan of Ben's work, obviously. I think I interviewed him last year or two years ago or something like that. Should catch back up with him at some point with all of his new backlit stuff out there now. So He's killing it on the screen game. Absolutely. Uh, I just don't know if there's going to be enough demand that he actually finishes the the DMG, uh, uh, the updated screen. I might be one of the few people that I actually, I think my favorite as far as uh, comfort goes is the Game Boy Color. And mm-hmm. my second's the DMG, and then everything else is kind of a far distance after that. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I kind of like that bigger. You know, it's kind of yeah. easier to hold on to. So I agree, I agree. Uh, and then I think anything beyond the original GBA, like the the DS and mm-hmm. on, uh, they just don't work for my hands. Having nothing to do with anything else about the system, uh, other than the those DSs, the flip DSs, I think look stupid. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I never liked the look of the original. Uh, yeah, but yeah. So, are you um, are, now? You're obviously right now focused on original Game Boy, but have you started messing with any of the other handhelds at all? Uh, yeah, I, I have. I've done orders for people for Game Boy Colors. I've done actually a significant amount of Game Boy Colors, a few Game Boy Advance, um, and I used to work with other systems too. I used to do a lot of N64s and NES and Super Nintendos. But um, once I started getting confident with my modern skills, living in an apartment, I decided to focus on one system. And I figured a Game Boy DMG, I have nostalgia for it. It's small. I can stock every part. This is, You're in my bedroom right now. Mm-hmm. I can stock every part in my bedroom and um, not have to worry about it. It's not as easy to do for NESs or if you're doing multiple consoles. Mm-hmm. Figured I'd master one system, a small system, and once I have everything done with that, then I think I'll start moving on to other things. Cool. Yeah, I completely sympathize. I have a tiny apartment in New York City, so I get it. It's uh, incredibly messy. you got the in-laws coming over tomorrow, and my wife's like, you do <laughs> something at all with this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going to do. But, uh, yeah, I, I feel your pain there. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing... Every time I've brought this idea up to people, they're either like, that's dumb, why would you ask that, or they're totally on board. But one thing I always wondered was why no one came up with a way to take, like, the SP Game Boy Advance. Um, Like, imagine taking one without the backlit screen, uh, getting a backlit screen and putting a kit until, at the time, the idea was a 3D printed case that was essentially like a Game Boy Color. So what you're doing is putting it, you know, so that way you could have that same look and feel. You'd have to put trigger buttons maybe where the battery curvature was or something like that. But that way you could have the same nice feel of a a Game Boy Advance, something with the screen on top. I mean, a Game Boy Color with the screen on top, but actually have a Game Boy Advance in it. Have you considered working on anything like that in the future? Um, I'm actually working on something that's coming up that's along the same lines of what would need to be done to do what you're talking about. Um, I think that's a really good idea. I think that at this point, though, it's probably too late to the game to make, to make it worthwhile with all the, like, BitBoys and GB Boy Colors and all those clone consoles that are coming out for so cheap. Uh, and then also with Ben's work on replacement screens and things like that, uh, there's, there's a lot of options out there for people who want something like that. But um, have you heard of the GPI uh, case? Is that the 3D printed one? No, it's it's actually it's actually a legitimately manufactured case now, but it's for um, Raspberry Pi. You know, to do like uh, Game Boy Zeros. Okay, yeah. It's a pre-made case that has um, the extra buttons and stuff for you know, like a it's a four-button Game Boy. I have seen it. So it's almost, imagine like a Game Boy, but with the Super Nintendo layout of the buttons, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I have a buddy who, I'm not sure his exact connection, but who is somewhat connected to the company that's doing that. <laughs> and um, he's sending me a case, and we're probably going to modify a few things to it, like you said, to be able to add trigger buttons, things like that, and then mold the case and yeah. get those available. Uh, hopefully that'll be around... August or September, um, but I, I have thought of kind of what you're saying along those lines. That's what you'd need to do is you'd modify a case one time, mold it, and then you'd cast replicates of that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. 
And, you know, the only thing I'll slightly disagree with you on is that with all of these emulation solutions coming out, um, most of the time what that ends up doing is just pointing more people in the direction of modders like yourself and Ben uh, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have known to look before because they see a more mainstream product like that. And your average person, you know, loves to mess with it, throw some ROMs on it, whatever. But the people that really care about it, sometimes that's their gateway drug where they go, well, this is cool, but I know what emulation's like. You know, what about the original? What about all my games? What about the my beat-ass Game Boy that I can't even see anymore unless I get the angle just right? And then right. with some Googling, that's when they stumble upon. So I actually think devices like that tend to boost the sales of other things. And Ben's right. certainly not having any uh, any problems selling out every time he comes out with those backlight <laughs> mods. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I would think that anything like that that gives you a new way to experience some your original stuff will always sell. It's just a matter of how many. Well, is it worth your time? I guess is the best best way to reference that. But yeah, but yeah. You're you know, wrong. especially with all the broken Game Boys out there. Yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. That's that's uh, one of the things that I noticed um, uh, throughout this whole process is every time they came out with a classic. That was the system to be modding when it came out. Like if, if yep. you were an NES modder, when the NES Classic came out, it just like you said, it reminded everyone. It was like they got the NES Classic and they're like, you know what? I want my I want my real NES and I want to play it on my HD TV or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And everybody kind of wins, right? The people that don't, and I mean this respectfully, but the people that don't care enough about having an original experience get to just have their cheap thing, and, and it's close. And the people that do care now. You know, now they get to discover this whole new world of crazy crap that uh, <laughs> that all yeah. bunch of people are making. So yeah, you're right too. Because uh, I mean, the people who want to play on those bit boys and stuff, they were never going to pay the right amount of money to get a modder to do the work in the first place. Yeah, and that's that's totally okay. That is, I have yeah. never have any problem with that. The only time I, in fact, the only time I ever uh, feel the need to say something is when people say. The opposite, like using original console shit. This is the only way. No, it's another yeah. way. Silly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm trying to go back and think of all the different uh, posts. I, I follow you on Twitter, obviously. Um, what are the other stuff that you've come up with, or other things in the pipeline that you'd be comfortable talking about? Because I know you don't want to talk about things that might be a year away, because you don't want to have people banging down your door to try to get them. Right. Um, hmm. <laughs> Well, one cool thing that uh, Sean is working on right now is um, it's, it's Bluetooth kits for controllers. Um, but, uh, uh, excuse me, um, with the intention of all of the mods being reversible. So it would be like a kit so you can make your N64 controller um, wireless without... Um, permanently damaging it, you know, all reversible mods. So basically you just um, remove the wire from the controller and um, you put in the board and um, there would be no modification to the shell at all or anything like that. You just put in the board and replace the wire and if you ever want to go back, you just replace the wire. Uh, That's a cool one, but I don't know I don't know the time frame on it. He's developed prototypes for SNES controllers, mm-hmm. uh, um, but he's a very busy guy, uh, and we're starting to see options out there already for that, so I don't know if we're going to move forward or not. Um, one thing that I'm really trying to work on right now is uh, LED buttons. Uh, so, like we were talking about before, having LEDs embedded in the buttons themselves, um, but it's just very complicated on figuring out how to wire it once the LEDs in the button. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. I imagine anybody that does any kind of chip tunes or something, especially some of the live uh, presenters, would love to have things light up when they, you know, anytime you press a button, something light up. So that's pretty neat. Well, then also, like, the way it goes, you'd buy a button from me, I'd send you the button, the LED and the resistor are already inside the button, and again, it'd just be wiring the power and ground. Um, or to a transistor or however you want to run your, your LEDs. Um, no, you couldn't run the LED off of just the signal line on a Game Boy button, right? The thing about it is I'm not well enough educated to know if that would mess up 
anything with it. Like I would hate to th- like do it, test it, and it works, and then send it out and find out like it introduces lag to the button press or it, it, you know, I'm right. not electrical engineer, so I'm, I don't want to do anything. That's a little. No, that, that makes sense. And the, my concern, once again, not being an electrical engineer, my concern would be would it put too much uh, current draw on that? You know, it's something that's designed for whatever, you know, less than a volt going to the pads, I believe. So, yeah, right. it's certainly, because it's definitely, yeah, I don't know. I should stop talking because I'm not an expert. But I, I understand <laughs> everything that could go wrong as well as how neat it would be to just have that wired together like that. But when I do my LED controllers for lag testing, I always have them powered separately. I have a little PCB yep. that I think Zach and Steve designed for me that I just throw in there, and I just fire up power directly right off the, the chip. Well, yeah, because, I mean, especially on the original Game Boys, which are 30 years old, uh, I think the biggest issue is you have this aging DC-DC converter, and as it ages, it's falling out of spec. Mm-hmm. Now, on the original Game Boy... Um, Everything was over-spec'd, so that means it's still completely in running condition. However, when you start introducing mods, if you're not powering it off of an auxiliary um, regulator, you're, you start pulling too much current from the DC-DC converter, and then what ends up happening is it, the uh, negative voltage rail and the 5-volt rail start getting spikes and dips where it can't provide stable voltage. And you start getting, like, screen flicker or contrast issues. So I tend to just any mod that is in a Game Boy, it's run off of an auxiliary regulator. It's it's not running off of the stock. You let the stock one handle the Game Boy itself, and everything else is separate. That's awesome. I wonder um, I wonder how easy it is to change the stock regulator and if that's something that uh, people recommend yet. That's that's another project that's in the in the pipeline is um, Sean and I have discussed uh, although we don't have a prototype yet but we've been discussing having drop in DC DC converters that provide not only the uh, five volt rail but also the negative rail for the LCDs hmm. uh, um, and so like in the Game Boy DMG it's four wires to the DC DC converter you just desolder them and wire in the new four for you know the drop in. Uh, hmm. So that's and also in the the pipeline. Whenever I do um, any of the mods on uh, my consoles, I always try to replace the voltage regulator on there. And it's one of those things where even the guys in the retro roundtable are like, "Eh, I don't know if you need to do that yet." You know, but at some point, it's going to fail, and right. it's going to fail. Before it's not like you know, of course, at some point, everything's going to fail. The CPU is going to fail, the motherboard, but. It's gonna it's gonna fail way before those components. Yeah. So I always look at things like that. Like you know, if you get just even if the efficiency is identical, but you've replaced something two years before it would have died anyway. Eh, you know, maybe you just bought another twenty years out of that console. So who knows? No, I, I agree, uh, particularly because on a Game Boy, it's running off of batteries. Mm-hmm. If you can replace a regulator with something that's more efficient, even if the the original one has plenty of life in it. The regulators these days are way more efficient. So if I can save battery life with that, I do. Um, also, to your point, um, th- there are four Dan 215 diodes that are um, in the Game Boys that control. Uh, it- it's the diode array that controls button presses. And um, they almost never fail. But I got a system a while back where I found that one of the, or two of them had failed. And ever since then, when I test them, if they're like a little bit out of range, just like a millivolt out of range, I just replace them. For the same reason you're saying is I don't want the customer in a year to have a Game Boy that dies on him. Yeah, and if it's already starting to change, it's a sign that it's on its way out. And whether that out might be a year or five, it's on its way. So, Yeah. Yeah, always good practice. I've been doing um, the presentations I've been doing this year – I've likened all of this stuff to the classic car industry, um, right. you know, both in that, you know, if you, you don't need a classic car, you, if you own one, you want that experience of driving as opposed to just going to get a new car, but also that all of those need some kind of restoration and mm-hmm. it's getting, it's getting that way. Certainly with CRT monitors, that's without a doubt. I, I, I would, 
it's in fact at the point where I'd say if you own a CRT, you know, it's going to need maintenance now, pretty much, if you want a really good experience. And we're getting that way with consoles. Some of them, like Game Gears with the capacitors, yeah, yeah. You're, you're already overdue to change the caps on those if you own a Game Gear and haven't changed them yet. So it's funny to see how, that, how that's progressing. Yeah, that's um, when I was deciding which system I was going to do, I was looking at Game Gear or the original Game Boy. And um, for that reason alone, I went with Game Boy because I have nostalgia for both. But Nintendo did such a good job on the original Game Boy as far as design goes. Everything was over-engineered. Everything is silk-screened onto it with every value. You know, it's it's, and I still change the caps on every game. If you send me a Game Boy, it's getting a cap change. But it's a lot easier than dealing with. Uh, the Game Gear, where Sega made an awesome system, but bought really cheap components. You know, every cap in a Nintendo is a Nishikon or a Panasonic cap. It, it, it's a cap that can last thirty years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny when you uh, you know now that so much time goes by and you start to hear the stories of how these things were made, and a lot of times from the Sega engineers. They, they had to make it backwards. Like, the engineers will walk into a room, and, the, you know, some marketing team will go, hey, this is the Genesis, so make your board around that. But that's where the cartridge slot's <laughs> got to be. That's where the power button's got to be. Uh, good luck. Have, have fun with that. And right. you start to see, when you, you hear stories like that, you, and you, want, you look at the board, you can visualize how it came together. Like, well, right. can't we just move the cartridge slot over by, like, half an inch? Nope. That's, that's what you got to work with. So start from there. Build around it. Cross your fingers. Well, and it's it's not to say that either one of the companies was right or wrong. It's just they each chose different paths. Um, mm. You know, Sega decided that they were going to spend their money on having more powerful systems with more features. Um, and to compete in the market, they had to use cheaper components, where Nintendo said we're going to use old technology, but we're going to do it really well, and we're going to use really nice, good components that aren't going to die on you. So... Good point. I can understand why both did their thing. So how did you get started even doing this stuff? Was this, you know, uh, do you make molds for a living? Or is this just like, uh, you know, is that your day job? Or is this just a neat hobby that you got yourself into? No. um, Dude, it's it's been a really interesting path. But basically, uh, when I graduated high school, barely, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So instead of going to college and just anything that interests me, I just started doing. Uh, so I, uh, did word woodworking for a while. Um, I did automotive for a while. Um, I know you mentioned classic cars. I have a 55 Chevy pickup. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And so I went through that and I mean, we have so much information available through Google and YouTube and all these platforms. Um, and then uh, um, I, I found myself, I, I don't know if you want to keep this in this, but uh, I found myself growing weed up in uh, Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I got really into growing uh, hydroponics. Mm-hmm. And then that evolved into growing aquaponics, which is like where you have uh, fish and they're pissing shit, feed the plants, um, and the plants filter the water for the fish is the simple way of putting it. Um, and I wanted to start automating it. And so I was looking into ways to uh, have sensors and a computer that would automate the whole process, and I stumbled across uh, Arduino. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't know anything really about electronics outside of my six volt system in the Chevy. Um, and so I started looking into electronics and Arduino and I thought, well, how can I learn electronics, uh, cheaply, uh, and effectively. And so I started buying old NESs off of eBay and seeing if I could fix them. So I just buy them broken and see if I could fix them. And uh, I'm sure, you know, it turns out NESs are pretty easy to fix. Um, so, I was like, okay, well, so now I have these working NESs. What do I do with them? And um, so I started selling them back on eBay just for whatever I spent on them. So if I bought them for 15 bucks, I'd uh, fix it up. And whatever I spent in parts, 
uh, I just add that together and then sell it back so I wasn't making a loss. And uh, then I realized it was like a good education plan. You know, if you want to learn something, um, it was a good way to do it. Uh, I wasn't ripping people off or anything, um, just paying for my cost of education. And so I started doing that. That was about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, oh. Come on, but sorry, dude. Um, yeah, man. So that was how I got into it. Uh, was really just I wanted to learn how to automate my garden, and I never ended up doing that. I just <laughs> went down the rabbit hole into games, uh, and then for molding and casting, it was um, I thought three D printing was so cool, but I'm just I'm not a computer person. I'm not I'm software retarded, and so. Uh, I do plan on learning how to code and do CAD and all that stuff, but uh, I thought, well, I don't know how to 3D print, but I can do it by hand, and uh, that's how I got into to molding and casting. Man, that, that's awesome. You know, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard similar stories and people that just, they don't learn the way that the school system's set up for. I'm definitely one of those people. I did... I did terrible in high school because I, I refused to put any effort into something that bored me to death so bad. And then, you know, the, I, a couple times I think they said, you got to go to summer school. And so I just got A's on all my tests, passed the classes, didn't have to go to summer school because I just, I hated it with a passion. And it's so hard to know where to turn because everything in the past, I guess since our grandparents' age, so maybe, you know, in the past 50 years, it's all... This is how to succeed. You go to get really good grades in high school, and you do your extracurriculars, and then you go to college, and then you leave college with a half a million dollars worth of debt, but a really great, you know, job prospects. And it def- definitely wasn't for me. I got lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, yeah. and landed a decent job that led to the next, that led to the next, and now I'm here. So if it wasn't for that just lucky first step. You know, I don't even know what I'd be doing right now. But it is funny to see how many people go to weed because. The only thing that matters is are you talented and smart enough and reliable enough to grow and sell? Right. And no one's, no one's asking you for you know your college transcripts or what grades you got in high school. The bottom line is if you're a reliable <laughs> businessman or businessman or businesswoman, right. that's it. You know, And you can produce, you've won. And right. it's just it's funny because I've heard that story a lot lately and it always makes me smile. And it's just like that's, the world should be based on your accomplishments, not pieces of paper that you essentially paid for because and i know you know uh, people like nick from hd retrovision he you know he was one of the people that did it right and he used his college education to as his backbone for the other things that he did but most of the people i know don't <laughs> don't follow that path they you know they don't have they don't have good things to say about about that path for them everybody's different of course i'm not shitting on college it's just nice no. to hear people that found their own way yeah, I think education is extremely important, but if you don't know what you, if you don't really know what mm-hmm. you want to do, I don't think college is the right path until you do. Um, you know, unless you have so much money that it's not a problem to just go and explore things, then right. fine. But um, but yeah, and um, my mom was always very big on like um, she, she didn't so much care how I did in school. But when I came home from school, she would make me write the addition tables and the subtraction tables over and over again, front to back on each page and alphabet forward and backwards. She she was always very big on you need to learn. I don't care where you get it from, but you have to learn. And I agree with that. Is uh, Especially now, we have so much access to information. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah my mom was a school teacher as well, so I got you know, I I'd certainly got that growing up, and it just, obviously, I love to learn. I mean, look at the website. I got hundreds of pages of stuff that you know, I only know a little bit about, but I, I, was, I took the time to try to dig in, and I, I just, I enjoy it very much. It's just, um, you know, in, in a different way than some people. So right. hopefully the world will change where everybody could, uh, could do it the way that works best for them. But uh, yeah. I'm glad to, glad to hear that you're, you went down the path that was best for you, I guess, so... Yeah, it, it, and it's funny. It's it's a weird circle to come back to this point where I'm working with Game Boys because um, growing up, uh, we weren't. I mean, we weren't. We didn't have video games. We weren't allowed inside. Uh, well, I sh- that sounds horrible. <laughs> like, you come home from school and you go play outside until sundown, and then you come in, you eat dinner, and then you do your homework or whatever that you have to do. But 
it wasn't revolved around TV or video games, but I was always, my friends had video games and I was always envious. And then when I was in like first or second grade, uh, the Pokemon thing hit in like 96 or whatever it was. (laughs) And uh, I was so jealous of all the kids who had Pokemon on the playground and were playing on that. And um, uh, there was one day I was <laughs> I was on the school bus and one of my neighbors I didn't know who it was but one of my neighbors had left a Game Boy um, with a Pokemon Red in it and um, so I see it on the seat and I was like ah, and I grabbed it and I put it in my backpack and I went home and he had already beat the game he had Mew he had like he had the and I think it was even. Um, the event mew, like you think he got it legitimately or something, but he had 151 Pokemons and eight gym badges. And uh, I played it for a night and I thought it was so cool. And then the next day I was on the bus showing it off. I was like, yeah, my mom bought me a Game Boy and a Pokemon. I already beat it. And my neighbor was like, oh, really? You already beat it? When did you get it? And I was like, oh, my mom bought it for me yesterday. He was like, really? You already beat the whole game? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. He's like, let me see it. And he opened up the battery cartridge, and his name was on the inside of the fucking <laughs> battery cover. Uh, so I got in trouble for stealing his Game Boy. But, uh, but yeah, it's interesting how life brings you back to things like that. Yeah, it does crack me up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, I never had the stay inside problem because although I was never athletic, I always loved being outside riding my bike. And it was just bad weather days. You're in playing video games. Good weather days. You're out causing a ruckus, lighting shit on fire, going around the neighborhood. So I, I, I did have that good balance. But, you know, obviously video games struck a chord. Otherwise, this wouldn't be where I fell in adulthood. So well, there's certain video games that you'll always remember. Like N64 was my first system ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like Conker's Bad Fur Day is just something my brother and I played for hours. Um you know, Pokemon Red will always be nostalgic. There's certain things, just there's this nostalgia of, I mean, remember being a little kid and just going to my neighbor's house and watching them play for two hours trying to get a turn, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember all that stuff. I even remember when the pizza place down the street got a Mortal Kombat machine. That yeah. blew my mind. All those things. So, kind of fun. But So, I think we touched upon pretty much everything. Was there something I missed? Something that you wanted to let people know about? Any products that you were working on or anything? No, just, um, I mean, the the biggest question that I get all the time is from people about when am I going to do molds for other systems, buttons for other systems, shells, controllers, all those type of things. Uh, All of that is in the works. Uh, It's it's in the plan. I just want to have the science down, and it's easier to do it figure it out all on one system first. So uh, the next year or two, you'll start seeing things coming out for uh, other systems. Like I'd really like to be doing NES shells, Super Nintendo shells, uh, N64 shells. Um, So more things to come. You know, um, one of the things that a lot of people had mentioned was, is there any way to take any of Kevtris's products, like the Mega SG or the, the Super NT, and put it into a Super Nintendo shell. And there were a few people that looked into it, but then, of course, you have to ruin an original SNES shell to do it. So I imagine if you were ever in the future, I'm not you know, I'm not putting any pressure a couple years down the road, but if you were to make a drop-in replacement that looks like a Genesis or looks like a Super Nintendo, even if it's smaller, but that you could drop in the, uh, the Kevtris boards in, or even things like a Mr. platform, all of those, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think people would do backflips lining up to get some of those. What's his name? Um, uh, Mr. Add-ons? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, we've been discussing some of those possibilities. Uh, I don't know if anything's going to happen, but he's a really good dude. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. We're talking about stuff like that. But, but yeah, there, there's a lot of um, other applications for this that uh, could happen. Like you said, um, we could cast a replicate SNES shell and then use that to modify to make a mold for a Kevtris board or something like that. So there's ways to, to make that happen without destroying an original shell. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very, very much looking forward to what the future holds for these molds and stuff like that. And uh, I will put your, your Twitter uh, at sign in the description, wherever they have this. 
Uh, where else can people find you? Do you have a site that you like to use? Or uh, Well, yeah. I mean, I have a website, which is RourkesRetroCorner.com. Uh, as I said, I'm in a transition, so at the moment, it's pretty much just DIY kits on there. Uh, um, uh, Facebook is Rourke's Retro Corner. Instagram is Rourke's Retro Corner. Uh, I don't understand really Twitter yet, so <laughs> it's like Rourke and a bunch of weird numbers. Uh, but, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this, um, and I'll make sure that everybody uh, has the links to wherever they could find you. Yeah. Oh, uh, can I say one more thing? Yeah, of course. Uh, definitely check out Sean Maxwell. He's the guy who um, he developed the backlight controller with the touch sensor. That was his idea originally. He put all the work into developing it. Um, and uh, you can check him out at SJM4306 on YouTube. He does really, really, really cool projects. And I'll make sure to put links to that channel as well for anybody that wants to check it out. That way you don't have to write it down or remember. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll definitely be doing a follow-up with you at some point. So thanks for taking the time to do this. And we'll have to make you a uh, retro RGB show. Ah, awesome.